1973, a group of indigenous artists formed a collective. The press called them the Indian Group of Seven. Their goal? To raise the profile of indigenous art. It was all or nothing. We're representing all our people. And create a permanent space in galleries for indigenous artists in Canada and around the world. That was really a rock star moment for me. I'm Soleil Lunier, and this is Among Equals, the history and legacy of the professional native Indian artists, Inc. Listen wherever podcasts are heard. Art Slice is a different dive into art history. We goof around, we curse, you learn from it, but don't expect a typical lecture. You're welcome. Welcome to Art Slice, a palatable serving of art history. I'm Stephanie Duenas. And I'm Russell Shoemaker. And listeners, we missed you. So much. It's it's so good to be uh, back in those <laughs> precious little ears, those fuzzy little ear hairs. Ooh. Stephanie, you know what I'm talking about? Those little fuzzy white <laughs> yes. ear hairs. Yes, I do. So Stephanie, what yes. are we talking about today? Today is part one of Our Lady of Purpose, Helma of Clint, in which we will discuss a group of her works called... The Ten Largest, painted in 1907, tempera on paper, mounted to canvas. So we should say here, listeners, that we came to find out huge parts of Hilma's life, her story, were just being plain overlooked. Most of what's out there either reduces Hilma to just this mystical, occultic outsider artist (laughs) who, quote, spoke to ghosts, or frames her as the inventor of abstract art. Right. I mean, neither of which are true at all. I mean, she did not stumble into anything accidentally. Right. It sounds good for a movie premise, but (laughs) it's it's incredibly reductive for Hilma because she worked with such an intensity and purpose like throughout her whole life. Yes, Russell. <laughs> you have your hand raised. I don't want to interrupt the flow whenever you're ready. Just got, I, have a, I have a list of questions here for you. A list of questions? A list of questions, yes. Okay. Uh, well, okay. I mean, first do your thing <laughs> if, you're, if you're ready. Like, do your thing first. Listeners, we highly recommend that you check out all of the images we discussed today on artslicepod.com or some of the images on Instagram at artslicepod. Stephanie. Yes? Do you want to seek out the truth Yes. Do you want to hone your ability to tap into flow states to better manifest your creative vision? Yes. Through meditative and clairvoyant practices? What? Do you want to see beyond this physical world's perceptions? Are you offering me LSD? I'm not doing LSD again. Uh, (laughs) Last time I thought I saw Karl Marx, but it was a homeless man in a hospital parking lot. Anyway, anyway, do you want to, after lives upon lives, finally reap the fruits of your astral seeds and evolve back into your home um, within what I've decided to call the God Bod. The God Bod? The God Bod. <laughs> What's the God Bod? Don't worry about it. Oh my God, I'm afraid to answer. Like I'm afraid that somebody's listening Don't worry, to Stephanie, my answers. I've actually picked out some very tasteful astral chore coats for us all to wear. <laughs> okay. So it's going to look pretty pretty sharp. 
Okay. Well, allow me to introduce you to Madame Blavatsky, a Russian philosopher from a wealthy family who said in 1845, mind you, fuck all this, I'm going to go out and explore the world by myself as a woman. Pretty bold, right? So she said fuck you to her fortune. Yeah. Okay. I guess so. I don't know. So she's hanging out in Europe, Africa, Asia, the Americas, and then she falls in with this group of spiritual teachers. Okay, okay. Some, Stephanie, who she met in person, others whom she would communicate with via an astral Zoom call from the White Lodge. Hmm. So this is like David Lynch reference number 20 on Art Slice, right? I think we've severely underestimated (laughs) David Lynch's references. Okay. Eventually, she ends up in Tibet. I don't know how. It was a place that was impossible to get into or out of at this time, and she trains for years to gain a deeper understanding of the synthesis of science, religion, and philosophy, which would become the tagline for her major book. Okay. Now we should say here, Steph, we should say here, she almost certainly made up the Tibet stuff, okay? (laughs) She was caught conning some supporters via an astral postal service. Okay. She tried unsuccessfully (laughs) to become a secret agent for the Russian government. And she had this weird root race theory that kind of sort of advocated for some good old fashioned colonialism. But we were all doing it at the time, right? There it is. Who's we? Anyway, 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 anyway. But she eventually hunkers down to write a monumental book called The Secret Doctrine. Not so secret anymore. Yeah, well, you know. Okay, Stephanie, so she names this religion Theosophy. So she officially formed the Theosophical Society in 1875 in New York City. New York City. New York City. With Henry Olcott, who was a well-respected socialite. So Henry's involvement quickly lent the society legitimacy. There are two things going on here at this time that really pried open the doors for theosophy. First, there was a budding fascination in the occult. So wild stories of spirits creating ruckuses at seances. That meant that everyone was getting on board, right? I got to go out, have a seance, see what this shit's all about. Got to resurrect my granddad, get that crab cake recipe that I really (laughs) liked from him. At the same time, science was making major breakthroughs, right? So electricity, x-rays, radio waves, atoms, quantum mechanics, dark matter. Not to mention, it was becoming easier and easier to travel across the globe. So Mm. folks were being introduced to all these new ways of life, all these different ways of thinking. Including Madame Blavatsky herself. Including Blavatsky, yeah. So there was this expansion of the possibilities in the imagination of everyone, right? And here's Blavatsky over here waving her hand saying, hey, I can show you how all these things are connected and then maybe a little bit more, right? So theosophical chapters quickly spread to major cities all over the world. That is right, listeners. A woman started a religion in the 19th century. (laughs) Yeah, and actually theosophy would do away with societal gender roles. So women were also jumping on board. Yeah, so she was into that too. So we should say here, listeners, we've been accused of being godless, wisecracking communists, but we're really probably agnostic who are maybe a little bit communist curious. Um, as long as, you know, we're wearing some cool chore coats. Right? We like chore coats. Yeah, yeah okay. matching chore coats. Anyway, as an outsider, theosophy looks like a hodgepodge of ideas. Some that are probably insightful. Most are very convoluted. I'm sorry if you're a theosophist, but as an outsider looking in, very difficult to crack. Blavatsky took these scientific breakthroughs, said we're not going to stop here. We're going to explore the world beyond reason right about where science stops. Mm, These scientific discoveries, they're here because this astral world exists 
all around us like an embryonic sac. Hmm. Evolution is real, but it's not random. It's very, very purposeful. The physical world and all the organisms on it are constantly evolving, much like how a baby grows in a womb. And if you recognize this, if you seek the divine, if you harness your unique spiritual faculties, you too, Stephanie, can hone in and utilize the unseen all around you and find your place within the divine God body. I didn't know that's what I wanted to do. No, you do. Yeah. You okay. want to be a part of that God bod. You already are a part of that God bod. I just have to accept it. You got to accept it. Okay. Find your way back. Back to the God yeah, bod. Yeah. Back to okay. the God bod. Back she connects science, philosophy, Hinduism, Christianity, <laughs> Buddhism, reincarnation, and puts kind of an occult spin on them. Okay. And look, I'm not making fun here. There are, I, I think, like a lot of similarities in world religions, oh, personally. Yeah. And even I think it, they share some traits with science and philosophy. I mean, ideas happen simultaneously all the time. We're all trying to figure out why we're on this earth. So Blavatsky finishes writing The Secret Doctrine and she passes away not too long afterwards. But Theosophy lived on and it actually still lives on. Really? Yeah. Eventually, The Secret Doctrine and a book by her successors called Thought Forms would make its way into the hands of artists like, and I'm not sure Stephanie's heard of any of these, Vasily Kandinsky, (laughs) who actually quotes Blavatsky in his book concerning the spiritual and art. Piet Mondrian, who actually had a pinup of Blavatsky in his studio. Oh, Not as dirty as it sounds. Okay. Agnes Pelton. Kazmir Malevich, the Baroness Hilla von Ribe, if you remember her from the last episode. And of course, the lady of the day, Hilma off Clint. Okay. It turns out this way of conceptualizing the seen and the unseen just spoke to these artists who were already tinkering with the edges of art. And if you're a sensing, feeling, interpreting artist, Blavatsky is giving you permission to take a look at the world around you, see the unseen, right? And then from nothing but nuts and gum and your own curiosity, (laughs) create something tangible, something that is able to traverse from the invisible world in your brain to the observable world. What a time to be an artist. The sound of Hilma dipping her brush into the tempera paint and spreading it in quick and long strokes across the surface, synchronized perfectly with the backdrop of the rain, gently pitter-pattering against her studio window. Until the rain stopped. Then all of a sudden, it felt like all of the air had been sucked out of the room. Hilma came to present consciousness, the here and now, as she felt a warm glow on her face. The sun had broken through the clouds. She stood up from her place on the floor and walked towards the light. The garden was illuminated with afternoon sun rays, casting shadows on the ground. Everything was brighter, clearer, crisper. The greens on the many trees that lined the park, the soft colors of the surrounding buildings, all seemed to have a vibrancy from the sudden rain showers. Even the puddles the rain had left seemed just as bright. Small pools of abstracted shapes. Remembering the brush in her hand, she was reminded of the fast-drying tempera paint she had abandoned. As the air filled her studio room again, she quickly made her way back to her place on the floor to paint on the surface of her current work, which was just as vibrant as the scene she had witnessed, except what she had captured would not fade away after the sun had set.
This is Hilma Afklint. It's the late 80s, the mm. late 1880s, mm. and she has a studio in the art sub of Stockholm near the Kunstgården, where she would spend <laughs> at least 10 years of her life. It was in the same building complex where Edvard Munch... Oh, I remember from, him. Yeah, from episode three. Yeah. Remember the screen? <laughs> okay, so Edvard Munch had an exhibition there in 1894. Mm. And this is all to say that Hilma was at the epicenter of creativity in Stockholm at She's this time. She's surrounded by it. She's surrounded by artworks. She's surrounded by galleries, the TGI Fridays. And, you know, maybe like a, a cheesecake factory here in the future, right? Yes. Okay. Listeners, there's a TGI Fridays there. That wasn't just like a, a an image out of my brain. It, it's there now. Yeah. Th- luckily for us. Otherwise, we would have nowhere else to eat. Gross. No. Anyway, this is to say, listeners, because there is this preconceived idea that Hilma of Klint was some outsider mystic artist. And let us just dispose of that notion right here and right now. She would go to the Cheesecake Factory, have a little <laughs> meal. She was very well educated. She was surrounded by art. And she would travel to see art throughout Europe. Let's think about Frida Kahlo. There is just this romanticized lore of an outsider artist making it big. But even Frida, while she wasn't traditionally trained, her high school was immersed in the arts. She actually watched Diego paint murals at her high school when she was still a student. (laughs) Hilma was actually making money from her work. She was exhibiting her paintings and not not the paintings we're here to talk about today, but some very nice landscapes. Stephanie, we do have one of her paintings right here called Summer Landscape from 1888. Oh, okay, yeah. Let's have a look. So we're looking at a nice en plein air painting. Oh. It's a sunset. We're surrounded by tall grasses, which you know I love, and a little dirt road winding on through those tall grasses. Yes, where the sky meets the earth and the trees get kind of lost in the sky in a mosaic of paint strokes. It looks a little bit like the way Van Gogh painted or the way Monet would emphasize color, but much more subdued. She's flirting with what the Impressionists were flirting with, but she's not quite taking the same leap here. Mm. It's still a landscape. She's just winking at him, you know. (laughs) Kind of. Um... (laughs) But it feels like it's just a little out of focus, which is how this would appear to you if you were standing here at this time of day with the light fading and the grasses slowly swaying in the wind <laughs> like you dance. And this is all to say that our lady here knows how to paint. And even if it's not clear yet, we can tell she's working towards something that she has like a, a purpose for lack of a better term. And purpose in art is something that is it's hard to define, but it's really easy to spot. Like you, you know it when you see it. It's intuitive. So how did Our Lady Hilma hone her artistic skills, you're wondering? She came from a well-educated naval family, and her parents enrolled her in Navy Cadet School, where she was exposed to mathematics, science, cartography, and botany. But what she took from all of that exposure was completely different than what her grandfather and her father took from it, right? They were all naval, naval people. These sciences pushed her towards visual art. And her family totally understood this. She had their full encouragement. Her father's naval ties would help her become one of the first women to study at the Kunstfach, a.k.a. the University of Arts, Crafts, and Design in Stockholm at the age of 18, where she would study for two years before ultimately moving on to the Royal Academy of Fine Arts. And that's a prestigious art college still to this day. And she was also one of the first females ever to Mm. attend the school as well. Hmm. You get a sense from Hilma that even at this young age, she was not only talented and passionate, but she worked with that purpose Mm -hmm. we talked about. Yeah. By the time she was 20, she had command of classical techniques like perspective, 
shading and composition. And you can see this in that summer landscape where the composition, the colors, they look oh, 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 so good. <laughs> and I don't, I'm not a landscape guy, personally. I don't know about you. I am. Okay. I'm a landscape guy. All right. We're looking at some of her studies, and I am just in awe. Yeah. Look at this image of this spiral staircase, this study. There are no lines. She has successfully rendered this by only using shading. This is why she got the studio at the Kunstgarten. The Royal Academy actually awarded this to her after she graduated because she was such a kick-ass artist. She was selling her landscape paintings. She was illustrating children's books and illustrating horse surgeries mm. for a veterinary school. Mm. That's a that's a different type of children's book for a, a different type of child. <laughs> yes. One who's like really into, uh, you know, parts and pieces of horses. Okay, sure. A, a little boy named Hans. Okay. You don't leave him alone with the pony at the pony party. Whoa, no, no, no. And no. it's it's really tempting because he's, he is, he and I, I mean this, Stephanie, he is no. very polite. Oh, I, I can tell that you, your new skincare <laughs> routine is, is working wonderfully. You have such a magnetic glow. Uh, can I? Can I please be with, uh, with, no, you, with Hans. the pony alone? No, Hans. Can I please be with the pony alone just for a few minutes? Just for a few little minutes? Oh my God. Just, just, just let me talk to the pony alone. <laughs> no, are a, you going to use... Just for a second. Are you going to use that on me, like, off mic? Like, Stephanie, can I have some ice cream? Can I have some, can I have some <laughs> ice cream, Stephanie? I know you have keep you keep it hidden from me, but can so I So close, some? Hans. You're so close. I, I want to believe your compliments, but... I care about the pony a little bit more than okay. my okay. Just look my over, vanity. Just look over there for a moment. Where? Over there. Where? <laughs> no. Stop making stabby motion motions, God. Oh, my God. Hilma wasn't making much money, but she was making money independently, which was new for women at this time. Mm -hmm. Being one of the first generations of women allowed to study at colleges in a time when women were still thought of as subservient to their husbands. You would think that there would be some deference or hesitation from many of these women, but that did not apply to Hilma. Mm -mm. She was fearless. She wasn't afraid of outdoing or hurting her male peers' feelings. And she wasn't afraid to draw male nudes since it was unheard of at this time for women to draw male nudes. Yeah, they would protect their eyes with like a little cloth. They'd be like, Hilma, you <laughs> have to have the cloth in front of the, in front of the thing. <laughs> Like censoring it with a cloth for her. Uh, I'm scared of no guinies. No guinies? Yeah, no okay. guinies. Uh, no puedos tener la, las guinies. <laughs> she was just like, ¿Dónde están los guinies? No, she got her, no. her paper and her pencil. No She's guinies. Like, ¿Dónde están los guinies? No puedos tener las guinies. No <laughs> okay. guinies. Okay. All right. She wasn't afraid. I don't know how to say cloth in Spanish. So the cloth. Okay. See cloth. <laughs> no, you don't see. See cloth. Oh my God. Okay. All right. She wasn't afraid. Guinies aside. Mm. She has this really nice quote, okay? Quote, you must ignore your fear of the guineas. <laughs> quote, you must ignore your fear, for without the will to believe in yourself, nothing good will happen, end quote. When you have a purpose, it allows you to be fearless. She came from that naval family, right? Going out on the ocean for months at a time, that would be like some scary shit. Yeah. Yeah, you can have all the training, all the naval training in the world, but if there's a storm, I mean, there's a storm. You have to be out there for a purpose. You have to be fearless. Jesus, take the wheel. <laughs> During the summers, her family would holiday on the island of Adelso in Lake Malarin, and I can just see a little Helma in her proper Scandinavian dress, her hair pulled back, 
the hem of her dress drenched with water and sand from playing in the shallow water. I can see her appearing over the edge of the shore, the reflection of her little face staring back at her, abstracted by the ripples in the water, mirroring the sky behind her. That's a, that's a beautiful picture, Stephanie. You're welcome. Yeah. So little Hilma just patiently observing what she can see underneath the water, but also wondering what else is hidden underneath that surface. And her imagination is just running wild. Imagining that she had formative experiences like these, we can flash forward 30 years into the future and imagine Hilma approaching a blank canvas paintbrush in hand, temper and paint at her side, envisioning the colors, lines, shapes, and symbols that she would conjure out of the blank surface. So we talked about Hilma's artistic roots. So now let's discuss Hilma's introduction into the spiritual realm, which overlapped with her artistic education as a young woman. In the 1880s, all Swedish citizens were expected to be members of the National Church. But the Swedes were also experiencing that same spiritual curiosity that sparked the rise of theosophy. Everyone was going to seances on Saturdays, only to be found in the church pews on Sundays. <laughs> Listeners, and not Russell, because what? because you hate scary movies. Um, but think back to any scary movies you've watched. Oh, thank you. Where I know where there are spirits involved. A lot of them have flashbacks to sepia tone images of people sitting at a table calling out to spirits. You know what I'm talking about? No. No, I don't watch those movies. I, I saw Bird Box once and I, I couldn't even drive down a highway by myself without getting freaked out. Okay. I don't think there were spirits in, in, in that matter. one. Same thing. Scary. Okay. Okay. So Hilma too began participating in seances and reading spiritual and occult teachings around 1879 when she was 17. And then she became even more fascinated with the spirit world after her younger sister passed away just months later. So Hilma gets her taste for the otherworldly. She isn't able to contact her deceased sister, but now her eyes have been opened to all of these worlds that she can't see. So she starts trying stuff out, right? Mm -hmm. She's trying out all these samples as if they're ice cream flavors, <laughs> and the line to buy ice cream is growing longer and longer with every scoop she's she takes. She's that one. She's the person who's trying all the scoops. And she's taking her sweet time yeah. making, like, like mouth-smacking sounds, like, mmm, yeah. spiritism, mmm, occultism, mmm, Rosicrucianism. And then she stumbles upon Theosophy, which just happened to open its first Swedish sect in 1889 okay. when Hilma was turning 27 years old. She is one of the first to join in the membership. She's, she's there. She wanted the giveaway for the first 100. Yeah. <laughs> she got the uh, canvas tote. <laughs> yeah, well, yes, I love totes. That's awesome. Yeah, no, no more tote stuff. Okay. Listeners, we have so many totes. This is a real, real talk, Stephanie. We have so many totes. Look, this is an intervention between me, the listeners, and you. What are you going to put in those totes, babe? Stuff. Okay. All my stuff. All right. All right, all right, all right. All right. Let's move on. It's just a few years later in 1893 when Madame Blavatsky's book, The Secret Doctrine, is translated into Swedish. Mm, okay. She is so inspired by this book, this Theosophy Society that she's now part of, mm. that in 1896... She's like, okay, no more samples. I'm going to start my own band. Your own bands, okay. Thus, the five, yeah. or de femme, de femme in Swedish, is born. Okay. Hilma, together with four other female artist friends, explored the possibilities of the otherworldly together. So, Stephanie, in the Swedish melodic death metal band that is de femme, 
<laughs> what is what's Hilma's role? Okay, I don't know anything about band dynamics, Mister Mambo Number Five. Okay. I, I don't yeah. know. Don't bring you caught me. Yeah, you don't need to bring up Mambo Number Five. <laughs> Too late. They would meet often to meditate, read from the New Testament, and then conduct seances. We actually have a picture here of their table, their seance table. seance table here. So there looks to be an early version of one of those Ikea rocking chairs. You know the ones. You know. And then it looks like there's this, no, it's a Pegasus cutout. Yes. And some nice wallpaper. I mean, it seems like a real rad place to hang out on the weekend, right? (laughs) For sure. And then you can also see some pictures I think of Christian saints. I think that's the Virgin Mary and baby oh, baby J. Baby J. Do you see that? Okay, okay. Yeah, that would make sense because they would mix in the Christianity with the theosophy. Oh, okay, make it a little more palatable. Yeah. The five, they were attempting through mediumship to speak to these high masters. They, they were astral teachers who knew about the secrets of the universe. Right. So in order to contact these high masters or astral teachers, they would make automatic drawings. So automatism oh, is a drawing technique that eliminates conscious Wait. control. So Hilma entered a trance-like state to transcribe messages and drawings as medium from these high masters. So for Hilma, this is a big breakthrough. When she began her spiritual exploration, it was more about talking to spirits. But now she's able to allow more of these evolved spiritual guides speak through her. Little does she know that these high masters and automatic drawings would give her purpose she needed to build one of the most stunning bodies of artwork we've seen in the 20th century. Stephanie, I'm trying to keep the Pachamons at bay, but they're they're getting too strong. All right, let's go to the Art Slice Pantry. Those little pantry pups they used to be. Automatism is a drawing or writing technique that eliminates conscious control. While drawing or writing, you are not actively controlling the marks on the paper that appear before you. Or at least you are not thinking about them. Listeners, you've probably heard of automatic drawings before when there's been mention of surrealism. It's a bit different from what the five practice, but they are loosely linked. In surrealism, automatic drawing was pioneered by the English artist Austin Osman Spare in the early 20th century, who was surprised into the occult. The Surrealists didn't use it for occultic purposes. The images and writings produced during an automatic drawing session were seen as coming from the artist's own subconscious and void of any rationale. The five, however, considered themselves mediums. Through automatic drawings, spirits were actually able to communicate through them. While the automatic drawings were beautiful, much of the mark making was like, uh, let's just say, static on a radio tuner. The point of the automatic drawing session was to tune into what the spirit was communicating. Like a far-off radio station you're trying to hear through the static by turning the dial. So if you want to try out automatic drawing, you don't need to be concerned about the subconscious or astral communication. You can just relax, try to clear your mind, and just draw. Don't look at what you're drawing, don't try to draw anything, and vary your pace and movement when you're mark making. Just see what happens. Stephanie, a little punch from my babies. They're not the little pantry pups they used to be. They're not. But they're still kind of cute, even though they're they're getting on in age. Uh, Let's get back to Defem. Okay. During a seance in 1906, Hilma was directly contacted by one of the high masters to take on a project that was far more extensive than the automatic drawings that she had been producing with the five. They were like, hey, Hilma, you want to go solo? You want to go solo? I'll make you a contract. The other women in the group were not willing to accept this commission, and they warned Hilma that the intensity of this kind of spiritual engagement could drive her into madness. But Hilma was fearless. So she accepts, and she begins to cleanse her body so it can be a vessel for this commission. All right. 
Hilma is in her studio when suddenly the air in the room felt just slightly cooler and the natural light dimmed as if a wispy cloud was passing over the sun. She felt the High Master's presence in her studio. They warned her to work in complete secrecy and to keep them hidden from the public until the time was right. Hilma would spend the next 10 months preparing to complete the High Master's spiritual commission known as the Paintings for the Temple. Her daily regimen would include praying and fasting, as well as eliminating meat from her diet. As she begins the commission, she still does not know what it all means, but she trusted in the High Masters, but more importantly, she trusted in herself. Hilma was 43 now, and she had decades of experience painting and drawing badass landscapes and portraits. (laughs) Although she did not yet know it, The work that would flow from her mind through her brush and onto the painting surface was not something that she could have ever anticipated. Saying it was a huge departure from her traditional work would be an understatement. So the first series she completed for the paintings for the temple was called Primordial Chaos. It's made up of 26 small canvases of organic and occult symbols that were painted in a blue, yellow, and green palette, and all of the work is in an ordered progression. Mm. Hilma had always been surrounded by symbols, you know, whether it was learning how to read maps in Navy Cadet School or from her grandpapa. Or Swedish, just kidding. (laughs) Sorry. Wow. Oh my god, I'm sorry. Like Ikea instruction manuals? No, like proper Swedish in school. I'm 50% Swedish. (laughs) Do you think the Swedes are just Ikeas? Okay. Anyway, anyway, (laughs) anyway, rude. Okay. We have a very nice Swedish listener. How dare you? We do. And you insulted me. I don't even know where I was now. Where was I? Oh, or in art school where she was learning how to speak with visual language. Okay. Here she's utilizing symbols to tell the story about the birth of the world. So the primordial chaos that started oh, yeah. it all. There are a lot of dualities within theosophy. That's another, like Diego so and Frida, they're very into <laughs> dualities. Yes. So light and dark, evil and good, male and female, evolution, Stephanie, and de-evolution. That, that was a new one to that me. That is a new one. And it's all showing up in these groups of work. Hilma is also painting very quickly and loosely she's actually stephanie if you remember back to episode one starting to dip her toe in the abstract pool <gasps> that's and right she's one of the first ones there okay so like kandinsky yeah he, he hadn't gotten there yet georgiana houghton however she was uh she she's sunbathing she was like yeah i you know i already swam it's cool she it's already cool. took a dip and something that also probably helped ease her into this mindset i think were the automatic drawings you remember <gasps> we already fed you <laughs> The automatic drawings from the uh, sessions with the five. Remember the band, Mm. old man, old gang. She had already allowed herself to loosen up, but also hold her hand steady while making those drawings so she could still receive the spirit's message. Right. Hilma would complete two more series after Primordial Chaos before moving on to the most colossal of them all, a.k.a. the Mm. ten largest. Thank you to musician H Ninja for letting us use her song Kara, which I thought perfectly matched the purposeful life pursuit of Hilma off Clint. The lyrics are in Pali, which is a sacred language of Theravada Buddhism. Yonisio Manasikara, which means appropriate attention or wise reflection, which I think are wise words <laughs> and a great way to live your life or even, you know, just a way to look at your creative pursuits in your studio time. And it's available on Bandcamp for Name Your Own Price, so go ahead and grab it and support the work. 
Now, let's get back to the commission. Commission. So listeners, this is a collection of 10 massive paintings. Unfortunately, we don't have time to talk about each piece, but luckily, Hilma has divided them into four stages of human life, which highlight universal experiences. While the imagery is abstract, there's actually more representation than you might notice when you just have a few minutes with these paintings alone at a museum. So whether you believe in souls and or in reincarnation or not, let's get on Hilma's plane. Let's get on Hilma's astral plane, Stephanie. <laughs> let's step inside of the God bod. All right. Okay. So let's, <laughs> sorry, let's suspend our disbelief. It's like a little suit she put on. Chore coat? No, it's a God Separate. bod suit. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Okay, you can right. wear a chore coat over it. All right. So <laughs> the works have universal themes that we can all relate to. The first stage in this collection is babyhood. Babyhood? Do you do you possibly mean childhood? <laughs> yes, maybe somewhere between. You got a lot of jokes per minute in this episode, Steph. You going for the the title of uh of the wisecracker? Trying to take the throne? Wisecracker? Yeah. Eh? Twould step, be trying to, twould step be to this? an honor. Okay, let's get to it. Oh man, you really are. Okay. <laughs> All right. So two out of the ten paintings are dedicated to this stage of human life and development. They are all tempera on paper that were eventually mounted to canvas. So all of these paintings were painted on the ground. Like I said before, they are huge. They are ten and a half by eight mm. feet. So definitely mural sized, especially when they are all grouped together. These it's are big work. works. These are yeah. these are these are Diego sized works. Big boy <laughs> yeah. Diego sized works. <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay. Actually, I'm glad you brought that up. Mural sized like Diego's work in more ways than one. Actually, they were also all meant to stay together and in chronological order. You're supposed to read them like a mural, even though they are very abstract. Correct. Well, curators like to make it all feng shui, mix it up, but that's not really how she envisioned it, right? Right. And that was very clear in her writings. It's meant to be read sequentially. Correct. This is very important to her. And she described them as beautiful wall coverings that were made for an epic temple. And it's hard to tell from the images of these works, but because they're painted on paper, the paper actually wrinkled as it dried. Yeah. So they have a very unique texture to them you wouldn't expect. Like, it doesn't look like a painting on canvas. Mm. We know she worked on the ground to make these enormous paintings because at times you can see footprints on the work. Or so I've heard. <laughs> Listeners, if you can spot a footprint, you get a prize. Yeah, we couldn't find I don't find know them. what. Yeah. I could not find um, one. You know I like to get up in there. And but I the Guggenheim, I mean, the Guggenheim is, was busy as hell. <laughs> and that actually might explain why, as you'll see, listeners, all 10 of these seem to flow. They seem very fluid. They seem like at times they are dancing or rotating on a fixed point or just like floating around, bouncing off of things. And that is because, like like we said, Hilma's probably like five foot three. She's about the size of my Swedish grandma and she's working on the floor, right? So she's crouched down. She's walking around them. And these are enormous, huge paintings. So she's able to physically move with the work, okay? It's not on an easel. Like, she's got to move yeah. around the work. And the size allows her to do that, right? She can boogie while she does it. She can do it. It's okay. So she can be less controlled than she was with the summer landscape, right? Whereas basically just, like, her hand and her wrist moving. I think this plays a huge part into why these shapes throughout the series look so playful and dynamic. 
If you've ever seen the photos of Jackson Pollock painting his enormous strip paintings, he's very physical. He's almost dancing to make those. He's flinging paint. Now, Hilma's brush is meeting the surface, but she is at times probably moving around a bit like Pollock. Probably not as, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Drunk. Probably not as drunk. (gasps) Oh my God. I mean, probably I mean, you think like, you know, I, I, I think of Hilma as more of a skilled ballerina, whereas Jackson Pollock, he's the one who mm. is a little too drunk at the bar. And then Bruce Springsteen comes on. <laughs> All of a sudden, he's dancing by himself. He's moving to the beat of his own rhythm, which is a drunk rhythm, but it's oh like he's having God. fun. He's having okay. fun. He's throwing up on carpets. Oh, my God. Okay, so uh, what we're trying to say is that painting bigger can be easier. Yeah, This gives all these paintings a certain speed, if you will, right? At times, the speed is quick and the rhythm is upbeat. At other times, it's rolling to a stop or has just stopped completely. Let's get into what we see in painting number one. We see lots of organic shapes. Everything is floating. Some things are in mid-bounds and some things are, like you said, Russell, they're anchored to a fixed point, but you can still imagine them rotating. Mm. You kind of get the feeling that you're looking over into a scientific petri dish. Yeah, it's a micro macro effect where you're not really sure if you've zoomed in really closely or if you're panning out. Mm -hmm. And then in the background, you see similar brushstrokes to those used in her summer landscape painting. And what that does is it lends this illusion of depth. It's not a flat space, like in a purely Mm -hmm. abstract work. It mostly seems to mimic what it might look like to see lotuses on a pond's surface. And we have to remember, listeners, she's also painting with tempera. If you don't remember, tempera dries very quickly. Yes. So you're making a lot of brush marks. You you get that effect. If, if listeners, you're looking at home, these little brush marks gradate across the composition. So that is really due to using tempera paint. So she's running out of paint yeah. with each paint stroke. So some of the imagery that looks almost recognizable, we actually see in the wreaths. There are three wreaths here. Two of them look like crowns of flowers. And the third could also be a type of flower that is sprouting tendrils. This reminds me kind of of like raspberries because they get kind of hairy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Honestly, I'm getting kind of a Hawaiian shirt vibe here. You know, they're working at Trader Joe's. They're ringing the bell. They're coming up to help you back. All right. Or, or a greeting card. A greeting card, I think, is more apt. I prefer the greeting card. Yeah. The text appears throughout these works, but she didn't know what it all meant. It's actually very similar to those automatic drawings that she was making with Defemme. It's very similar to abstraction in a way because abstraction is a visual language and we may not be able to understand it, much like if we were listening to a foreign language, mm-hmm. but we can pick up on the affect, right? Through sounds of emotion and inflections. So I actually read this visual language as a name, kind of a celebration of a birth. Okay, yeah, kind of looks like a birth announcement, actually, now that you mention it. You've given this new life a name, and as the child grows up, they'll start to respond to their name, they'll start to develop a sense of their own individual identity, and slowly develop a consciousness. So a divine teaching of theosophy is that everyone is a part of this divine God bod. And while (laughs) your physical body evolves, your spiritual body evolves out of that God bod or evolves back into that God pod. That's why I had to stop drinking beer, Stephanie, because I was evolving too quickly into my God bod. And that journey (laughs) starts at birth. Not the beer part, the the God bod part. Don't don't feed your babies beers. (laughs) They'll get a little baby beer belly. Oh my gosh. Not cute. Okay. They also get a little surly. 
Uh, so Hilma is working with a foreign language, literally with the text, and she's working through what these teachings mean to her through this abstract visual language. So this is almost like her celebrating her own birth in a way. Seriously. Um, but back to Godbod, do you think there's a shirt out there that says Godbod? Uh, there is now, artslicepod.com. Coming soon. Moving on to numero tres, we have youth. There are two paintings within the category of youth. You start to notice things shifting around. There is a larger sequence that is starting to happen from painting to painting that eventually resolves in the final painting. So we'll get to that. Yeah. The shapes are grouping. They're forming, shrinking, enlarging. The flower forms become less natural. You just get this feeling that everything is evolving as you look through these first three paintings. I get the feeling of a sugar high from these two works. Well, you would. That's the makes sense. Like, the colors are excited, like like a candy store. Yeah, like your little stash that you keep hidden from me. I gotcha. It's for the... For the good. Okay, yeah. Uh, Yeah, okay, go on, go on. (laughs) Anyway, so I feel like I'm in a candy shop, and I just feel very positive and very optimistic. It feels like a time in life when you're making all these new connections, all these new neural pathways, things are bouncing around in there. All the forms that are in movement are intersecting, or they're bumping shoulders with one another. There is not a form that is not touching or encased in another form. Mm. Most of the forms are spirals. Sometimes they are depicted as snail shells, too, with their little antennas popping out. Uh, (laughs) The spiral is the symbol for evolution in theosophy. And evolution, as used by theosophists, means more than just a random passing on of traits over centuries. Evolution, it means the evolution of the planet overall. Housed within that spiritual embryo. Remember the spiritual embryo, Stephanie? How could I forget okay. it? Okay. <laughs> uh, and our own bodies as they grow, our own spiritual cells as they evolve. So it's very purposeful. It's very synchronous. To me, it feels like a snapshot of a metamorphosis. Okay, we caught it at a weird time. Mm. Kind of awkward. <laughs> like, like puberty. Okay. Your hormones are evolving and it is an awkward time. Okay, I was... <laughs> but you're also learning so much about the world. What? Okay. I, no, I thought you, you were about to coming. make another Gweenie joke. No. So one of the snails is slowly traveling along the only geometric form in this painting, which is a rippling circle. And this little snail kind of reminds me of clock arms. And it's something that's going to show up mm. a little bit later in other paintings. And then directly in the center there of that geometric circle is a propeller form, which is another, Stephanie, huge symbol in theosophy, right. as you told me, because you're an expert in this, <laughs> a form that Hilma is going to come back to again and again and again, not only in this piece, but in later works. Wink. Winky. Wink, wink. Wink, wink. Winky, wink. Okay. So this propeller has split up the inner circle into quadrants, and it's here where Hilma has written Ave Maria, which means Hail Mary in Latin, in each quadrant. Like, we can actually read it. It's the only text that we can read. Yeah. So Hail Mary, pray for these hormone-riddled souls who are (laughs) pimply and squeaky voiced oh my and god horny blessed. Oh, okay and their minds are probably too uh, you know oh. they're, they're on their guineas too much anyway, oh, okay. anyway so when you are this age it's a little bit awkward at times as you start to understand yourself better and you try to understand the people around you and i feel like that's why these shapes are interacting in the way that they're interacting this is a time in your life when you kind of stake your claim on who you're going to be You're going to step backwards and forwards as you grow because these are formative years and we're surrounded by a bunch of floating ideas, right? Some ideas are melding together and some you're absorbing and some are just bouncing right off of you (laughs) and floating away. All right, moving on to numero six, the second of a series of four categorized under adulthood. So we've all had our quinceanera 
Huh? Stephanie, here, we're, we're adults, we're grown. <laughs> I guess since we've all had our keen set, this could be why the color palette is less saturated, maybe. It's, we're not mm-hmm. in a candy store anymore, okay? Right. We want adult beverages now. Yeah, okay? yeah, yeah. The colors tamed down a bit, but this is a much wilder composition. It is the most confident of the whole series. I love it. It feels free of constraints. Mm -hmm. Like the work is not concerned at all with what it is or what it isn't. It's just natural. It feels like it's flowing. It's it's just incredible. This is a very off-balanced and balanced composition at the same time. It's heavier near the top two-thirds of the composition. The proportion of the large shapes to the small shapes to the text to the invisible dotted lines, they're all awkward shapes, but they're still somehow balanced. Mm -hmm. It actually reminds me a little bit of Alexander Calder's kinetic sculptures. Oh, yeah, for sure. So like balanced shapes that do not seem like they should be balanced at all, right? And what's also really great about this is that the shapes are echoing. There are these Mm -hmm. electromagnetic waves, radiation, x-rays, dotted cartography lines, and then these lotus flowers. They're all weaving in and out. They all hinge on one another. So like science and spirituality, they're all connected, right? In theosophy, correct. There is this dark looking shape in the middle of the composition and it's like an eye just blinked open. You're (gasps) wide awake now. You're seeing all the connections. It's all right in front of you. I think that's why they feel like they're hinged on one another, right? Yes. They're all connected. (laughs) Okay. Listeners, Hilma is 43 now. Her eyes are open. Her third eye is open. (laughs) Yeah. This is her third eye. Yes. Okay. So (laughs) if we're going to use this analogy of stages of development in life, you use the word confident, Russell. I love it. She's trained for almost a whole year to make these paintings. Mm. So to me, she seems very confident even though she's speaking with this language that she doesn't fully understand yet. I have a quote here. Quote, The pictures were painted directly through me without any preliminary drawings and with great force. I had no idea what the paintings were supposed to depict. Nevertheless, I worked swiftly and surely without changing a single brushstroke. End quote. So going back to this idea of purpose. She had a purpose in making Yeah, and I, I think she felt that purpose, which was to fulfill the vision of that astral commission that she either truly experienced or that she just manifested herself in order to give herself permission to make these in a time when there was nothing else like this. Right. She's older now. She's capable mm. of self-reflection. She has lived life and all of its highs and lows. Yeah, she's she understands the paradox of life, right? And all of that information, all that stuff that she soaked up by just living is rattling around in the back of her head like an empty spray paint can. (laughs) I don't think it really matters if it was a manifestation or not. You have to have a purpose and then you need to be able to execute it well because you can have a purpose or a vision, but it doesn't matter if it's poorly done. Ultimately, it doesn't matter where her inspiration came from because she had accumulated the skill set and she was in the right headspace to make these. Okay, listeners, so the last of the 10 that we will discuss is number nine, which Hilma has categorized as old age. And there are two paintings in this category rounding out the 10 largest. So we mentioned, listeners, the sequence from painting to painting, from age group to age group, how things change in each painting. And it's really subtle. But once the switch is made to old age, the saturation of the colors fade, the frenetic energy is gone, the chaotic compositions have all of a sudden become very balanced. These are the most symmetrical of the 10 because you got your shit together, I guess, by the time you're old and overall are much more subdued. 
and they are much more narrative. And that's the reason people relate to Hilma's work, because she speaks to them through a universal narrative. All while remaining abstract, right? Mm -hmm. It's like a soundtrack in a way. She doesn't really need lyrics to tell a story. I mean, she's obviously she has some lyrics in this, but she doesn't (laughs) need lyrics to tell a story. The components of the storytelling are all felt. So one of the narrative moments, if you will, is this one portion of the composition that is off kilter. That faded square in the background. We love that we square. We love that square. It is faded red and it's made up of these like beautiful <laughs> little smudgy it's a real paint nice marks. Moment. This reminds me of a memory fading. We can see the outline of shapes that were once there. It's kind of like when you move a piece of furniture or <laughs> oh, a picture yeah. frame that's been there for years and there's this dust outline or you can tell the paint has faded around it. Well, maybe it's the absence of that frenzy from the earlier yeah, painting. Yeah. yeah, she plopped the frenzy in a yard sale. She doesn't need that shit anymore, Stephanie. She's an old woman. All right, she ain't got time for it. <laughs> okay. Okay. So spirals are showing up again, but they are loosely wound now. And once again, I'm still reading them as clocks. The battery, I think, is just running low, right? If you're thinking about an analog clock, the hands are barely keeping up with time. And there are two wheels at the top of the composition, and those two flower propellers from youth are are back here again, right? This is part of the sequence. They're more ornate now. It's like a design that you might make on a spirograph, if anybody remembers those, or they kind of look like an old-timey bicycle wheel. I'm blown away by how precise she was in painting these. I cannot believe she could make these by hand, like freehand. No way, right? Even the she scale, She had to have, like, a French curve or something. I don't know. She's painting, too, which is crazy. <laughs> but anyway, between the two, they have eight petals, which is maybe nothing, or maybe it was influenced by the Dharma wheel. So symbols of mindfulness, meditation, joy, harmony of spirits. Mm, beautiful. Or... It could be energy is flowing from one wheel to the other, like from one body to another or from one life to the next life. I don't think anything Hilma does is an accident. No, it doesn't seem like it. Except for maybe some of the little paint splatters we see throughout the series. Yeah, good point. Which I really like. But anyway, as we will see, she is building up a visual vocabulary of meaning with these symbols. Mm. So the flower forms seem to be losing petals. The petals are floating down as we follow them, right? It's not dramatic or anything. It's just kind of graceful and just making their way down. They start to change into seeds, and it looks like the shapes are preparing for the next life. So I think of the word perennials. Things are just slowing down, and and it's sad. I'm <laughs> I'm agnostic, but I I do get that pain in me when I when I think of reincarnation. It's like saying goodbye to your empty apartment for the last time, mm, and yeah. you're you're looking at those dust outlines, right? Really sad. You'll get another apartment, but it's not it's not be gonna be same. yeah it's not gonna be the same one, and it's it's not gonna hold all those long uh, gone memories. I mean, th- they're gone, right? And mm-hmm. they're gonna decay with you, but there I guess will be new memories. So it's sad, but I don't know. It also feels like a healthy place to be in. Getting ready to be reincarnated. Yeah. I don't yeah, I don't like it. <laughs> I like <laughs> it and I don't like it. It's very uncomfortable. Okay, so in the final painting, number 10, it's worth noting that there is a geometric mosaic that could maybe be read like a tombstone. Yeah. And there is a symbol that looks like a teardrop or a seed that has a tiny little composition (laughs) hidden in it. And it's almost as if to say that the cycle is starting over again. Don't worry, you're going to be able to live again.
It's 1907 now, about a year after Hilma began painting the paintings for the temple. Exhausted but satisfied, she had just wrapped up painting the third series, The Ten Largest, which took her only 45 days to paint, meaning she spent four days making each one with one day's rest per painting. She had created these monumental and extraordinary works with a combination of elements the world had yet to see. Even though she did not understand what she was making in the moment, nor immediately after, her sense of purpose had carried her through the largest of the series yet. Although she trusted in the High Masters, she had also fearlessly believed in herself. So let's wrap these up here before we end on a cliffhanger. Oh my God. Are you going to Who Shot Monty Burns Me Part 1 again? (laughs) A little bit. No, I definitely am. No little bit. You are. It's happening. Yeah, okay. Accept it. Let's move on. Okay. By the time Helma finished The Ten Largest, she was mentally and physically exhausted. But let's just say that she was not a hermit. Mm. She had the femme. She had a studio assistant. She went to parties. She was social. I'm sure she had friends throwing pitchforks at her windows and Hilma, come come to the pony party and you have to keep an eye on Hans for us, please. No, he's very polite. Whatever they did back then. He's very bright. Very polite. (laughs) Oh, they say he's bright. I mean, he's bright and polite, apparently. Serial killer bright. Uh, Yeah, well, that you got. Anyway, I don't know what they did back then. But Hilma had to make sacrifices to finish this commission. She purposefully cut out distractions in her life to focus on her purpose. And that's something that artists have to do all the time. I mean, it takes a lot of sacrifices. A lot of sacrifices. That's the unglamorous side, I think, of being an artist that people don't realize. Yeah. So 45 days of that, pretty rough. Yeah. But you know what? I think it paid off. Mm. These works are overpowering emotionally and physically in their palette and size. Yeah. And people are often emotionally stirred by them. Do you think maybe that part of that is the legend surrounding Hilma? No, I don't think so. I think they are just beautiful and moving on their own because Mm. she's done such a great job in basically reflecting our human experience back Mm. to us. And it's just really emotional to see that in front of you painted in bright, bold colors and then these weird whimsical shapes that we've never seen before. (laughs) I mean, there's something that speaks to us intuitively, like a memory we didn't know we had. Mm, (laughs) Like our cells remembered it or like deja vu or, you know, whatever you want to call it. Right. So just formally speaking, when it comes to what she's actually done with the paint, I think she's showing her Mm -hmm. range in her painting abilities. Oh, yeah. So she's playing with opacity and transparency and translucency, blending, clean lines, Mm. soft lines, hard edges, Mm -hmm. blended edges. It's all playful, but it's well done. But it's also didactic. So she's still trying to teach us something. She's still trying to tell us a story. Mm -hmm. She's teaching us a universal story. Yes. Theosophy taught her to... Look for connections between things, I I think. Right. She was doing, in a way, what Blavatsky was doing, looking for threads between the visible and (sighs) the invisible. Yep. And that gave her the push she needed to find the connection between what we see and what we can take away from what we see. So, for example, connecting the way that flowers grow to the abstract lines in her paintings. Okay. Connecting the reflection of that murky pond surface to an atmospheric texture that she can use as a background or that she can use as a way to evoke emotion in these paintings. And then she just amps it up. Like, she just amps up the feeling. It's so wonderful. She just turns up the volume of that (laughs) Swedish death metal defem, right? Oh, no. And then she evolves it. She evolves it further. Right, because these things 
abstract and representational, they really all coexist together, the abstract and the tangible. So what I can feel in my hand right now is just as real as (laughs) my thoughts. Right. There is nothing purely abstract about abstraction. Nope. It is referencing something. Like we talked about in the Kandinsky episode. Bit by bit by bit by bit, you take from that reference and you slowly eliminate the reference, but the lineage, the vapor trail is still there. You can still trace it. And I think that's why these are so wonderful. I think that's why people get emotionally stirred by them is because that vapor trail is there. She's just in awe of the universe, like a child. Kids, they just create intuitively. And then once they grow up, we all, right, adults, spend the Mm. rest of our lives unlearning so that we can recapture that sense of awe and wonder. I think Hilma found that in theosophy and she never let it go. Yeah. This was a radical moment of growth for Hilma, personally, artistically, and spiritually. This is in sync with Theosophy's teaching that evolution is purposeful, it's not random. And Hilma's passion about life's evolution shows through in her paintings for the temple. Very few people had seen them during Hilma's lifetime, as she was instructed by the high masters to keep them secret. But Hilma thought she knew of someone who was worth breaking the promise for. There was someone who would surely understand her vision and could maybe even teach her more about the phenomena that had inspired these works. And that person was Rudolf Steiner, a prominent leader and metaphysical teacher in the Theosophical Society. The high masters would be understanding. But could she convince this busy man to travel all the way up to Stockholm, Sweden, from Berlin, Germany, to come and look at a stranger's secret paintings? You would think no, but actually, he agrees. Kurisumana sita, Kurisumana sita, Kurisumana sita, Kurisumana sita.